It's a privilege to be here to open up God's Word with you. I hope the rest of your Sunday has gone well. Uh, I feel like just when I get the opportunity to have a microphone in this church, uh, just to say how thankful I am to be a part of this church. Uh, and our campus outreach team is just immensely blessed to be a part of this congregation. And so just want to say thanks. I think the highlight for Jess and I and our staff team in general with moving to Michigan has been to be a part of this church. Um, you guys have been an immense blessing to our ministry, to our staff, to our families. So just want to say thanks and just so excited to be a part of this body and excited to worship with you guys. And so uh, tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm uh, 130. So if you'll go ahead and open your Bibles there. If you're using the Pew Bibles, uh, it'll be on page 518. So I'll let you flip there for a moment. And as you're flipping, uh, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer to ask for his help. So if you'll pray with me. Father, God, we need your mercy and we cry out to you for mercy. God, we often find ourselves in the depths of our sin. Can we despair because of it? We find the sin in the world is great, but the sin in us is even greater. Um, God, we, we need your pardon. We need your mercy. We need your forgiveness and your propitiation. And God, I pray as we cry out to you from the depths that you would raise us to the heights with Christ. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I read uh, the passage today, just something to note about the way it's structured that'll help us read it, uh, just so I can point this out so you guys can see it as we're reading along, just to notice the first six verses are kind of this I language. It's the psalmist in dialogue with God, and the psalmist kind of in dialogue with himself. In verses seven and eight, it flips and it's more like you language. And so it's almost like he's saying, this is the path that I've walked, as we'll see. And then he's turning to say, now follow me down it. And so he's going to address a problem and he's going to say, and I found the solution, follow me, as he talks to God's people, Israel. And so as I read the passage, just note that uh, kind of feature of it. And I think it'll help our reading of it. So if you'll uh, read with me here, beginning in verse one, where the psalmist writes, out of the depths I cry to you, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. And this is the turn. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Growing up in a small town in uh, central rural Illinois, it was pretty common for neighbors to come over to our house to talk with my grandparents on the front porch. It's just kind of something they did. In particular, my grandpa was pretty good friends with a guy named Russ that lived across the street. And they would come over, you know, Russ would come over to our house. My grandpa would go over to Russ's house uh, all the time throughout the summer, several times a week. And they would talk about various issues, you know, 
They would talk about their marriages. They would talk about their kids. They would talk about all the crazy things they did when they were younger. They would talk about their war stories and how great they were at sports or whatever they wanted to talk about. They probably complained about the local high school sports teams, so on and so forth. And if I remember correctly, I think some of their conversations were probably aided by a few adult beverages, if I you know, remind, remember correctly sitting on the porch with them. But after a while, my grandma would come out, open the screen door, and she would say something like, have you solved all the world's problems? And they would kind of sit there and laugh for a minute. And then they would go on talking about whatever they were talking about. But I think that's a good question. It's a question that the psalmist is actually, I think, going to address uh, for us tonight. And the question really is, what is the problem with the world and how do we solve it? What's the problem with the world and how do we solve it? If you were to answer that question, what would you say? Someone to say, what's the problem that you think the world has? What would you do about it? If someone to change the question, say, what's the biggest problem in your life? What would you say? If you could change one thing about your life, what's that one thing that would make everything better? And that's the question the psalmist is going to lead us to. And it's also a question that a famous writer named G.K. Chesterton answered in an article to a newspaper like 100 years ago. He wrote this article to answer that very question, and this is what he says, which will point us on to some of the psalmist's answer to that question. He says, the answer to that question, what is wrong with the world, is implied, is or should be, I am wrong. And he says, until a man can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. The point that he's getting at is that we can speculate about all the problems in the world that are out there. But until we realize that there's a massive problem in here, we'll never make much progress with all those issues. And so that's where the psalmist is going to lead us. The psalmist in this passage is going to help us see that the biggest problem in our life is us. The biggest problem in the world, it's you. It's me. Therefore, we must look to God for a solution to this problem. And the psalmist is going to show us the pattern or path of life that leads to a solution, the power that it will take or the resources it will take to walk along that path, and the promise on the other side of that path. To think about the structure of the passage, how we'll handle a bit, uh, maybe think about it like this, is that the psalmist is saying, I've walked the path. And I want to take your hand and guide you along the right pattern of life. I want to show you the power that you need to do that. And I want to show you that promise on the other side. And so that's how we're going to divide up this passage this evening. So the question is, if the biggest problem in the world is us, how do we get rid of us? How do we get rid of the sin that we find in us? What do we do about it? We need to find the right pattern. If you look at verse 1, the psalmist begins like this. He says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. That language that he uses of depths, it kind of calls to mind the language used in Jonah. When Jonah's thrown over the overboard of the boat, and he sinks to the bottom of the sea, and he cries out to God for mercy, and he talks about the seaweeds entangling him. This language of depths, it's like a, it's water language. It's kind of like when you were a kid, and you would go to the pool, and you would go to the deep end with your friends. You'd be like, I wonder if we can touch the bottom. You'd dive in, and that pressure that you would feel when you get to the bottom of a really deep pool, 
or maybe to understand it even better is if you've ever done the same thing in a lake or in the ocean and you kind of sink down deeply, which is probably not a great idea, right, to do this. Um, but I'm sure some of us have, including me. And you get down far enough and the pressure becomes immense. And if the lake's deep enough, it begins to get pretty dark and you begin to get pretty scared. That's the language the, the psalmist is calling us to feel as we read the psalm, as he cries out from the depths. That's the language he wants you to see. Well, what are the cause of our depths? What causes us to cry out in desperation as the psalmist is alluding to? To understand what he's getting at, I think we need to understand something about Psalm 130 that's unique compared to the psalms surrounding it, which are commonly called the psalms of ascent. So psalms of ascent have to do with uh, a collection of psalms that the Jewish people would use as they prepared to approach Jerusalem to go to the temple to worship God. The psalms of ascent were meant to prepare their hearts to be right to worship and approach God. And if you read through the psalms of ascent from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, you'll notice that the psalmists are addressing various issues that are all super important. They're talking about reasons to praise God. They're talking about um, petitions to God for peace to be brought to Israel. They're talking about asking for God for relief from the nations that surround them and attack them. They're talking about all those things. But the thing that's unique about Psalm 130 is that it kind of, it, it belongs to another set of psalms. These psalms have to do with a, a lament. There's psalms that have to deal with crying out to God and mourning something. And so the thing that Psalm 130 is addressing, it's not a mourning or a lament about the brokenness necessarily in the world. It's not just mourning maybe the brokenness or sin done to you. It's mourning and lamenting the sin done by you. And that's the unique thing that stands out in Psalm 130. It's kind of saying that as we prepare to approach God, the biggest problem that we face isn't just the things that hinder us around us. It's the thing that hinders us within us. We have to see that our biggest problem is ourselves. And the depths that we are in are because of us. If you look at verse 3, the way we know this is the psalmist kind of, as he goes on, says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And so we recognize the depths are caused by our own sin and our own iniquities. And that's the point he's making. Maybe to understand the relationship that I'm, I'm trying to describe here between Psalm 130 and the other psalms is like when you're growing up in elementary school and you're standing in line, right? And you're going to recess. There's something you want to do, but for whatever reason, you can't do it because there's kids in your class that won't stay in line or they're acting up. Their names are like probably Cody or Zach or Reed or something like that, right? You know the type of kid I'm talking about, elementary school teachers, definitely. And you think, I'm going to solve the problem and I'm going to point them out, right? Like, teacher, it's Zach. He won't be quiet. And I remember being told this as a kid, probably like in first grade in the same situation, and they would say, Chase, that's really rude. You know, when you point at someone else, there's three fingers pointing back at you. And you'd be like, dang it, you're right. You know, there are three fingers pointing out. Like, I didn't even think about that. I should have been like this. Um, but the thing that Psalm 130 is trying to get us to see is it's kind of like that, is that the truer the problems we point out in the world are, the more real 
these fingers pointing back at us should become. And so what Psalm 130 is kind of getting at is the Psalms make a great place to make complaints and petitions to God about the world around us. Many of you are dealing with so many things and have dealt with so many things, probably problems in your marriages, problems with your kids. You've dealt with difficult work situations and bosses and jobs. You've dealt with problems with your money and with health. You've dealt with all these things. You've faced trauma and suffering like I couldn't even understand. And those things have such a place to be taken to God and petitioned to God about. And the Psalms give every reason in the world to take those to God. But the more we point out those things in the world, we ought to be reminded there's three fingers pointing at pointing back at us. And that's what Psalm 130 is getting at. The more the problems we see in the world, we must see that we're contributors to those problems. The struggles in our marriage aren't just because our wives are bad or our husbands are bad. It's because we haven't been gentle or caring or loving enough. Problems we have with our parenting isn't just because our kids act up. It's because we haven't disciplined them right. or We haven't been patient enough. or We haven't modeled godly character enough. The more we see problems in the world, we look back at us, even our physical ailments. While not every physical ailment has a direct connection to sin by any means, we also ought to be reminded that Physical ambulance never would have came in the world if it wasn't for sin. And we all ought to know that we are immense sinners. Psalm 130 is helping us see the truer, what we, the truer the problem we point out in the world should just point out all the more flaws inside of us. And it's frightening. We must see that list one is legitimate, but this second list, things going on in us, is what Psalm 130 is addressing. I'll find myself walking often and praying to God kind of talking to him about list one type issues. And the list one type issue that I often find myself talking to God about is car problems. You know, some of you could probably, uh, you know, join me in that one. Uh, Phil Klosterman, I've probably had a lot of conversation about my car problems with him. Um, and I'll find myself walking and be like, God, fix my car. God, why'd you let this happen to my car again? You know, I hope the problem is as bad as I think it's going to be. But the longer I walk, the more I realize things like, why do I care so much about my material goods? Why do I care so much about my financial stability? Why don't I have enough money and savings to fix my car problem? Could I have been more responsible earlier? If I would have been more responsible with my money, then I could have supported other people and helped them when they're in difficult circumstances. The longer I pray, the, by the end of it, I cr- find myself crying out to God from the depths, asking him for mercy. That my bigger problem isn't just that I have a broken car, it's that I have a broken soul. That my sin is overwhelming me and my circumstances are only bringing out what's going on on the inside. And that's my bigger problem. And I'm sure some of you guys can relate. And so the first step in solving this problem is finding the right path and right pattern of life, which is humility and humbling yourself and going lower and admitting that it's not just you, it's me. That's the first step. But the second step is crying out to God for mercy. And that's what verse 2 is hitting on with the psalmist. He says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If Jess and I get in a fight, I don't just need to go talk to Ryan in his office and be like, Ryan, you know, I'm super sorry about what I said and how I acted earlier. 
I need to go talk to Jess, and I need to ask her to forgive me. If me and Steve have an issue, I don't need to go complain to Tom about Steve. I need to go talk to Steve about the problem we have. And if we realize that my sin is against God, I need to go talk to God. He's the one my issue is with, and I need to go ask him for forgiveness. And so we must cry as, as we realize the depth that we find ourselves in is because of us. Step one. Step two is to cry out to God for mercy. So after we've come to realize that our biggest problem in our lives is us, we must cry out to God, and that's so important. And so now that we've realized that this is the issue, we kind of realize a second problem with it, right? How can we really confess like this? We live in a world, as I joked about earlier, that doesn't just point one finger out. It does point all finger, five fingers out. It says, the reason I am the way I am is because everyone else is the way that they are. Our problem is that we fight for safety and security by pointing out the problems around us and ignoring the problems inside of us. That's how the world works. We put other people down so we can step on their backs. So we make ourselves feel a little taller, a little better. I often find myself drawing this illustration that I call, for lack of better uh, phrasing, the good-bad diagram for students on campus. The good-bad good, diagram is kind of like a continuum, ranging from good to bad. And you put like the best person you can imagine on the top and the worst person on the bottom. Typically, probably Gandhi, people say, and Hitler's at the bottom, inevitably. Um, and you have them kind of put different people on the spectrum. And the middle is like the equilibrium, right? And almost to the man, everyone I've shared that with puts himself just right above the middle line. And I think that the reason is, is that we find so much security, so much satisfaction by just finding people that we're better than, by finding the reasons that we can elevate ourselves above other people. It makes it so hard to be honest in our confession. It makes it so hard to realize that we're the problem. And we do this in the church too. We might realize we have problems, but at least we're not like those guys down the road that don't even believe the Bible's inspired, you know? At least we're better than them. At least I'm not like that other person in church that doesn't come to Sunday morning and evening worship. I know I've got that thing going on in my secret life, but at least I go to men's Bible study on Thursday morning, not like those other people. And so we begin to justify ourselves, and we actually find all the problems out in the world. Or a larger scale, and even easier to say is, at least I'm not like that blank, you know, political party, you know, I don't know which side of the spectrum you've fallen. Look at what they do. Look at the things they believe. At least I'm not like them. And we begin to justify and find our fingers pointing out. And to add to the problem of why we don't want to do this, the first issue is we have the habit of not doing it. But the second is we realize the weight of our sin. Look at verse three again. The psalmist cries out and says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? He recognized that just by confessing his sin, that God has every reason in the world to not forgive us. And it makes us want to hide. It makes us want to not say our sin out loud. So in order to confess our sins honestly, which will help us walk down the right path to, low, to being lower and to being humble, we need to have the power of salvation. We need to have the power that it would take to be able to do that. In our world, we don't confess for fear of not being forgiven. We don't say that thing to our friend that we did against them because we're afraid that we'll lose the friendship. We don't confess those things to the men in our small group Bible study or the women that we're close with because we love the way they look at us when we come into church, the way they approve us. And so we hide it. 
We find security by hiding our sin because we fear not being forgiven. But in God's economy, things are different. We have the power to confess because there is sure forgiveness on the other side of of confession. Look at verse 4. The psalmist says, but, which is a contrast word, right? If you were to mark our sin, how could we stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. The power of salvation, the power it takes to, to go down that path of humility is confessing to the one who will forgive you. How do we know? How do we know that there's sure forgiveness on the other side? This is kind of interesting uh, as you study this passage. The word you see for forgiveness there has been translated historically, like in the, the Greek version of the Old Testament and then the Latin version of the Bible, is the word propitiated. The word propitiated. It's the same word you see in Romans 3.25, the same word you see in 1 John 2.2 and 1 John 4.5, the word propitiated. Why do they put it there? What does propitiation means mean? It means, as Ligon Duncan says, averting the wrath of God by offering a gift. It refers to the turning away of the wrath of God as the just judgment for our sin by God's own provision of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. In order to be forgiven, someone must deal with the problem that we have. And the reason we can go to God with a sure sense that he will forgive us is because he dealt with the thing, the problem that we have between him. He dealt with it in Jesus Christ. He forgave our sin. It's already done. It's a done deal. It's accomplished. It's finished. And so we don't go to God fearing that he might not forgive us. We go to God confessing because he already did everything necessary to forgive us. The work is done. So we're going not to be forgiven, but because we are forgiven in Christ. And that's so, that gives us the strength, the power. We're not fearing having that relationship taken away, but God's established relationship in Jesus Christ. Security in God's economy comes from being able to confess failure openly and often to God himself. And that forgiveness leads to fear. Typically, we only think of fear as being people that actually withhold forgiveness. When you mess up, you fail, you sin, we have, there's fear of them actually not forgiving you. That's how we typically think of fear, people holding something over us or against us or punishing us. So how does forgiveness lead to fear in this verse? It leads to fear, a reverential fear. Some versions of the Bible use the word reverential fear, reverence. The point is that it's calling us to see that God who had no reason to have to forgive you, did. And not only did he just overlook your sin, he sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross. He did the work necessary to forgive you. And it ought to make us tremble. It's someone using their power to serve. It's someone using their holiness and majesty to serve you and to draw you near to him. And it ought to cause a reverential fear in us. And that's so important that forgiveness leads to fear. And so what do we do with this? What do we do with the power that we have now that we can confess openly without fear of relationship being taken away? Confess openly and honestly to God, to others. Admit your weakness, admit your sins, admit your failure. Take it to God, confess it to those close to you. It's the path that leads to the solution to your biggest problem, which is you and your sin. We must confess openly and honestly. So the pattern for salvation is to bring ourselves low, realizing it's me, it's not you, I'm the problem, it's not everything around me. The power to do this type of confession 
comes from knowing that God will forgive us and restore us to himself as our father. But why would we do all this? It seems hard, doesn't it, to confess your sin like that? To lose your status in the community? To be so honest about your own problems? To always be crying out to God because of your own sin and your own failure? Isn't it so much easier just to look at everyone around you and think, the reason the way things are is because of all them, not me. Why would we do it? What's the promise of salvation? What, what is the promise that this solution, this path of solution, offers? Present suffering, struggle, pain, and difficulty are only endured if there's promise on the other side. If you go to the gym and work out every morning, wake up early, do hard things, it's with the hope that you'll be healthier in four months, right? If you don't buy the new car, go on the fancy vacation, and save up, it's with the hope that when you're 65, you'll have a big retirement fund. I don't know if I'll know what that's like, but some of you might, you know. Um, but we always do hard things with this, the promise on the other side. For the Christian, our groanings in this present life are because we're pointing to a treasure in the life to come. So we must wait expectantly for the redemption that God himself will bring. Read verses 5 and 6 with me here for a minute. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. He uses this word wait and hope four times, and it's kind of connotating this eager expectation of what is to come. I think about it like a kid on December 24th waiting to open the gifts at Christmas on the morning of December 25th. He can hardly contain himself. The imagery of a watchman for the morning is kind of like if you've ever watched a war movie and you've got the guys in the foxholes, right? And they're looking out over the horizon in the darkness, and there's one guy that's staying up looking to see what's about to come. And the anxiety is immense and the fear is great, but he stays awake and he stays alert and he persists in his job with the expectation that the sun is going to rise. That's the illustration we're getting at. And so the point is that we must not look to salvation, functional salvation, not eternal, like day to day, what do I rely on? What gives me hope, treasure, trust? We must not look to that anywhere else between the already and the not yet. We live in already. Jesus Christ has died. He pardoned our sin, but we're not there yet. We still deal with the fingers pointing out, and, and we still realize that we have a lot of fingers pointing back at us, and it causes us to groan, and we think, how are we going to make it? The two temptations are this, and between the already and the not yet. The first is that we grow weary of waiting for God, and we look elsewhere. The second is that we begin to distrust God because of our own sin. A few years ago, I was driving to Pigeon Forge, Tennessee for a spring break trip with our, our ministry, these two guys, John and Mamoon. And for a variety of circumstances that always happen this type of trip, uh, we hit snow in Kentucky in March, which uh, I don't know if this surprises you, but it's pretty rare. Uh, and then there was a rock that bounced down the interstate and broke this girl's window, so we had to pull over for like two or three hours. Long story short, I wasn't driving into Pigeon Forge until about 5.15 that next morning. And these guys decided, we don't want to go to bed. We want to see the sun rise over the Smoky Mountains. Like, that'd be awesome. And I was like, well, I've already been up for 24 hours, so I might as well just see a cool sunrise. That'd be great, you know? And so we go outside. It's like a group of us, me, John, Moon, a few others. And, and we're looking out. And at first, I begin to realize, like, where's the sun at? I, I don't see it. Oh, we're looking the wrong way. I said, okay, now we got to turn. 
And then we start, you know, we're looking over that this mountain line, and we're waiting, 6.15 rolls around, 6.30, 6.45, 7 o'clock. And I, I begin to, to, it hits me, it's like, these are the smoky mountains, it's cloudy. We're not going to see the sunrise, you know what I mean? It was kind of disappointing. We went inside and tried to fall asleep on the ground somewhere because all the other beds were taken because we got there so late, right? Uh, but I think this kind of points us to seeing these two temptations. The first is that we're looking the wrong way. Um, we're waiting. We're told to wait for God to return, for Jesus Christ's return, to redeem all things. But in the meantime, we find ourselves looking the wrong way. We're looking back to those things that we once forsook, like pointing out the problems on other people because it makes our life easier. We begin to look for comfort in this life to get us by day to day. We think, how can I do another hard thing to lower myself further? Let me just go find some security now. We bolster our relationships and status and image in the communities that we find ourselves in because we just need a little functional savior just to get us through the next day. But there's another issue that I think is probably more common in, in this group and in our church, and maybe even in my life, is that we begin to distrust God because of our sin. And that's like the clouds that come up. St. Augustine used this illustration when commenting on this passage. Uh, he says, it's like a guy who's going to be killed, he's going to be put to death for killing five people. And as he's awaiting uh, the sentence, he begins to reason to himself and think, you know, if I'm going to die for killing five people, I might as well have killed 10 people. And so he reasoned to himself, what's the point? The punishment's the same either way. And what we begin to, re like, we begin to formulate in our own head is that maybe God's mercy is almost dried up. There's a tank that's full of mercy, and I've gone to God for forgiveness one too many times. There's only a few drops left, and if I go to him one more time, it's going to be empty. And so we begin to think, God's not going to forgive me anyways. I might as well just go and pursue my sin and live as pleasurably as I can in this life. That's the temptation. And so what do we do? In light of those two issues, what do we do? Looking the wrong way or we begin to be clouded by our own sin that we can't see the sun rising. We must live like the sun's going to rise. The sun's coming up over the Smoky Mountains. There's just clouds blocking it for now, but we need to wait. We need to go and see past those clouds. We need to live like we depend on God. In the face of temptation, when it says, this sin is better than God's word or command to you, trust that God is true, that his word is true, that his command is good and right. In the face of sinful condemnation, when Satan's hurling accusation at you, saying, God will never forgive you. When he tries to tell you who you are, and you stop listening to who God tells you you are, we must listen to God's voice, and not Satan's, not the sin that begins to blur our vision of ourself. In the face of worldly logic that says, don't lower yourself, exalt yourself. We need to listen to God and say the path of life means going lower and lower and lower and finding the problems that we find in the world aren't just out there, they're in here. In the face of insecurity, we must look to God for security, not finding it in functional saviors everywhere else. So how do we sing the song of ascent when we find ourselves descending all the time? How do we cry to God in the heights when we find ourselves in the depths of our own sin? The key is this. We must look to the one who sung in his descent. We must look to Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, who descended from his throne and became a man. 
is Paul says in Philippians 2, he was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. How do we go lower and lower and lower? We look to Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, who became so low, he became like us. Jesus Christ, who descended so far, he went all the way to the depths and took the punishment of the depths for us. We confess our sin openly and honestly to God and to others because Jesus Christ was the propitiation for our sins that removed any barrier between us and God and made us right with him. As Paul goes on to say in Philippians, he humbled himself not just by becoming a man, not just by entering the depths, but becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you. But that's not the end. That's not the last word. Is that we wait expectantly between the already and the not yet. Because Jesus Christ, although he died, he was raised. Although Jesus Christ was singing in his descent is that he ascended after the resurrection to bring about a new resurrection reality that promised the way things are right now, the fingers both pointing out and the three pointing back aren't always aren't the way things always are going to be. And so we look to Jesus Christ in hope for the resurrection reality. Just to close, I want to le- read those last two verses, the verses where the psalmist pivots and speaks to you. He speaks to the Israelites. He speaks to the Jews, the true people of God. And that's how we'll close tonight. Read with me in verse 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. O good shepherd, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. Because of Jesus Christ, we can know that, be assured of it. And with him, there's plentiful redemption because of his descent, his humiliation, his resurrection, and his exaltation. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He'll redeem you from all your iniquities. He'll redeem this church, people who believe in him or in Christ, from all their iniquities. And that's the hope we have. What's the solution to the world's biggest problem? Is that we need to be united to Jesus Christ, who became like us, but didn't stay in the depths, but rose to the heights. And we'll be raised with him on the last day. Let's pray. Father. You are good and you are great. You're holy and you're majestic. You have no reason to forgive us. Yet out of your mercy, your own purposes, your grace and your kindness, you sent Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, second person in the Trinity, to become a man. Not just become a man, became a man that was sick, that was hurt, that was betrayed by his friends, that dealt with the pains of this life and dealt with death itself, yet he didn't stay there. We we have hope for the life to come because Jesus Christ resurrected. And though we might find ourselves in the depths, if we look to Christ, we can, raise, we can be raised to the heights with him. Give us hope in that promise. Give us surety in Jesus Christ. Even though life presses in on us, our own sin presses in on us, let us be reminded of the truth of your word and count on it, depend on it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.